And I'm trying to do this thing now where, you know, I do, I do my research. I have my stuff ready to go, but like, I also just want to remain present Yeah, and have a conversation with a friend. Absolutely. Well, I have, I have my notes. I'm glad you have, I'm glad you have stuff to say. Oh yeah. class that's morning spelled with a u so it's a pun i'm andy sell and you're listening to ghoul school a horror history podcast here on the unpops network if you got a minute it would be cool i would appreciate it if you would rate and review this show wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to you can go ahead and follow us on twitter at ghoul history and if you want to go really nuts i got another podcast that i co-host and co-produce with my friend philip johnson it's called look good for the boys We're in our second season right now and doing a lot of fun stuff. You should check it out. Thanks. Also, thanks for swinging by today and joining us for this extra Dreadit episode. This is very special to me. I'm really excited about this one, not just because of my guest, who I'll get to in a moment, but also because both of the films that we're talking about today were released before 1960. That's right. That golden, long-lost, classic age of films that our mass culture's attention span for seems to diminish with every year. (laughs) We talk about less and less, so it's always exciting to have an opportunity to look at and discuss films from that era. So I'm stoked about it, but as I said, I'm also stoked because our guest today is a good friend of mine. When I first had the idea of doing these extra dreaded double feature episodes, She was one of the first people I thought of because she's one of my horror friends. She's one of the people I text about horror movies. Uh, Her name is Rachel Fisher. She is the co-host of the Hollywood Crime Scene podcast. And I was really in love with the selection that she made, which was 1956's The Bad Seed. I was also challenged by it, and it took me quite a while to come up with a companion piece for it because I didn't want to just go with another killer kid movie because how are you going to compare any other Killer Kid movie to the Killer Kid movie that started Killer Kid movies? So what I did was I chose what could arguably be called an anti-Killer Kid movie, or the opposite of a Killer Kid movie. 1944's The Curse of the Cat People, directed by Robert Wise and produced by the legendary Val Luton. But let's talk about this idea of killer kids for a minute, and just children in horror. The obvious answer when you ask, hey, why children in horror would just be juxtaposition, right? Like dramatic juxtaposition. Children are innocent. Children are harmless and often seen as insignificant in our society. So what would be scarier than inverting that and taking this picture of innocence and helplessness and making it malevolent and destructive? And that is true. It's an obvious answer. But I also think it's way more complex than that. 
And the complexity of that can be seen in the fact that we didn't get a true killer kid movie until 1956. Horror had been around for quite a long time, and children had occupied a space in horror, not just as victims either. Sure, creepy kids go back to Turn of the Screw by Henry James, 1898. And killer kids in our society, in the real world, go back to the 19th century with Jesse Pomeroy, who was nicknamed the boy fiend of Boston. So neither of these things were new concepts in 1956. In fact, children as a threat, as a malevolent, horrific antagonist, goes back to folklore. All throughout Europe, different people, different communities, different groups had stories about a mythical entity most commonly known as a changeling whether it was sent by trolls or malevolent spirits or fairies, these creatures would take over the role of a child in a family. Like, your kid would be replaced by one of these doppelgangers that would engage in all sorts of activities ranging from simple mischief to, like, outright atrocity. And now, of course, with, you know, the benefit of decades and decades of developmental psychology and, and studies of that nature, we can say that these were, you know... Like a lot of folklore, a magical story to explain things that we didn't understand. Neurological disorders, developmental disorders, neurodivergencies, and a range of other disabilities and diseases. But there is evidence of the changeling story in the natural world, in a phenomenon known as brood parasitism, where a species, usually of a fish or a bird or an insect, will lay their eggs in the nesting spot of another species to be raised by that other species. And one type of animal that engages in this is a family of birds called the cuckoos. There are 60 species of cuckoo that, that engage in brood parasitism as part of their life cycle, which is why in 1957, a full year after the release of The Bad Seed, John Wyndham released a novel called The Midwich Cuckoos, which was adapted into a movie called Village of the Damned, in 1960, which notably is the same year that the first ever chemical birth control pill was approved and made available to the public. In Village of the Damned and the Midwich Cuckoos, an alien species, an extraterrestrial race, has impregnated the human women in a village in England, and when those kids are born, they have unnatural, unearthly abilities. And it's significant because this is what most killer kid movies fall back on. This idea that, well, it's not the kids. It's something else. If they're not our human children that are doing this, or if they are our human children, they have no bodily autonomy. They've been hijacked by spirits or demons or aliens. And it's kind of a cop-out. Because The Bad Seed, which the novel was written in 1954, and Rhoda Penmark from The Bad Seed was not the first killer kid in literature. We can go back to 1949 with Agatha Christie's Crooked House, where the murderer turned out to be a 12-year-old girl. Or even back to 1941 in James M. Cain's Mildred Pierce, where we saw a character exhibit psychopathic qualities as a child. Or even to 1929 with Richard Hughes's A High Wind in Jamaica, a.k.a. Innocent Voyage, in which a child under extreme circumstances murders a, uh, an adult man. But The Bad Seed was the first to treat it like this is your story. What's wrong with this girl is the story. And instead of using a, a metaphor to explain the changeling phenomenon, it was genetics. It was 
a secret parentage. It was nature, not nurture, that created the conditions for Rhoda Penmark to engage in her malicious activities. And from there, we have this springboard of all of these other killer kid things. And usually, yes, they shy away from this kind of an idea because it's a scary idea. Let's be honest. It is a challenging, controversial, and terrifying idea. And there's a lot of debate and discussion to be had in that idea. And as the years went on, more and more killer kid movies had more and more things to say. And it wasn't always just about juxtaposition. We had very real world things going on. I mean, the very idea of birth. The biological process of human childbirth has been mined for horrific cultural impact. You have body horror, demonic possession, adults who think they're children, all of these other things. And a lot of times they mirror the very real social anxieties of the time, whether they reflect left-wing or right-wing agendas, you know, or conservative or liberal stances politically, you know, I mean... As things change, you look at things differently. Abortion, thalidomide, the dissolution of the nuclear family, teen pregnancy, gender roles, environmental pollution, etc., etc., etc. All of these things have stories reflecting the complex ways that we feel about them in horror cinema. Sometimes we're scared of children because they reflect our own mortality. They're, they're taking our place. Or they reflect the fears of whether or not we know if we're ever raising children right. What are our shortcomings? Or are we even responsible at all? You know, these are the conversations that you can have in this space. When William March wrote the novel The Bad Seed in 1954, the idea was that it was reflecting a rise in juvenile delinquency of the time. And sure, that might be there, but I also think it's maybe an oversimplification. This was a time where more attention was being paid to teenagers as a demographic. But these were very adult anxieties and fears on display. And they touched a nerve in people. The ad copy that Warner Brothers put out when the film was released sounded like a disclaimer. Quote, We believe motion pictures are for everyone. However, the theme of The Bad Seed is so special, it has never been attempted on the screen. It's intimate probing so sensational, they will shock some. This motion picture may not be suitable for younger people without worldly experience. Now, of course, on one hand, this is a temptation thing to tantalize and sensationalize. That was nothing new in advertising, even in 1956. But there's a truth in it, because this hadn't been discussed in this way with this profile before. And And even over half a century later, the way that this film chooses to do it still resonates, because it's not pulling punches. Even under the Hays Code, even under the white breadedness of it all, it's kind of incendiary. And it's also just a whole lot of fun. So I'm just going to shut up. And let's go ahead and listen to this conversation that I was privileged to have with my friend Rachel Fisher about the bad seed and the curse of the cat people. First of all, hi, Rachel. Hi, <laughs> If the listeners don't know, Rachel Fisher has a wonderful podcast called Hollywood Crime Scene. Yes. You should listen to it. Yeah. We talk about true crime pertaining to either celebrities or crimes that occurred in Los Angeles or crimes that were then made into movies. And there's a lot of those. those. (laughs) Go, go figure. And it's, it's funny because we'll be, we'll be talking about some true crime enthusiasm and hobbyism maybe as a, as a subject in this conversation because it comes up in, in one of the films. Yes, it does. 
Also, I want to say, because you, so the movie you picked is The Bad Seed, and I want, I think I've mentioned it a few times on episodes now that you are the guest who picked a movie that, like, not stumped me necessarily, but, like, I really wanted to do something special and different for it instead of just, you know, picking one of the 14,000 killer kid movies right. <laughs> that, that yeah. have been made since The Bad Seed. What about, why The Bad Seed? What about The Bad Seed? Well, it happens to be my favorite movie of all time, first off. It's a movie that I saw for the first time when I was eight years old. And it was one of those movies that immediately when I saw it, I realized I was watching something really special that I just wanted to watch over and over again. And I have seen it hundreds of times. I, I don't even know how many times I've seen it. And each time I see it, I'm just as riveted as I was before. There's something about it. It's like, to me, it's one of those it's a perfect movie. It's my kind of perfect movie where the acting's stunning. It's incredible. I mean, the cast is literally the people that were in the stage production. They got the same actors. So their acting is just perfect. I love the dialogue in it. I think it has one of the best horror scores. If you go back and just listen to the score, it's really fucking good. And I just... I was so excited to talk to a fellow horror enthusiast about this movie, just because I have so many thoughts about it. And I've never had a forum to really discuss them mm -hmm. <laughs> about this movie. And I've, like I said, I saw it for the first time when I was eight. I'm 35 now, countless times in between that I've seen it. And I do have so many thoughts on it. I think it's an essential horror movie viewing experience that mm -hmm. horror fans should all see this film. It's it's interesting because it is one of those films that is I mean it's a classic, yeah. It is a film that has its its reputation and, and a legacy, but it's also one that you don't see come up in like general horror discussions. It yeah. comes up when people talk about killer kid movies, of uh, of course, and it comes up in conversations centered around like queer cult cinema. Yes, which the, and that's sort of the space that the bad seed has found its. It's, it's enthusiastic audience. In. Well, and those are the only people that I really have met throughout my life that love the bad seed or appreciate it are other queer people. It, it does have like a, a cult following in that community. So that's also why it speaks to me probably. I mean, we're also the only people that count. Oh, see. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, and then there's, of course, you'll get the dreaded, oh, it's not a horror film, it's a psychological drama. Uh, which, no, it is structurally a horror film. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, it doesn't have gore in it. it look, that's a whole other conversation that I know, <laughs> I know you and I could do a whole other episode yeah. on what qualifies a horror movie. I think you and I could do a lot of episodes. Like, we, <laughs> people don't, maybe don't know this, but you... Are I think it's I think it's you and Fritz. Yes. And like a handful of other people are the people that I text or send messages to about horror movies when especially if I'm like watching something and I'm like, ooh, 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 this is a Rachel movie. Yeah. This is a Rachel movie. Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, I want to know what Rachel thinks about this. Like whether she loves it or hates it, I want to know. 
Oh, I, I'm absolutely the same way with you and James Fritz, where you guys are my go-to and I always respect your opinions. Like, I always want to know like, Oh, what, what they think of this movie. Likewise. Likewise. I'm yeah. like, <laughs> and bad seat is very much a Rachel movie. Oh, I mean, <laughs> there's so much about it that it just ticks all the boxes of, of like, of course I would love this movie. Mm-hmm. And you saw it at eight for the yeah. first time as you first yes. saw it at, at age eight, yeah. which is, Interesting because that's the age of Patty Patty McCormick's character. Rhoda. <laughs> Rhoda Penmark. What a name. What it's a name. There are so many great names in this film. Yeah. Monica Breedlove. Monica Breedlove. <laughs> Richard Bravo. <laughs> Reginald Tasker. Yeah. Reginald Tasker. And of course, my favorite character in the entire film is Hortense Daigle, <gasps> whose performance, Eileen Heckert's performance is devastating. It's, I, look, this is a movie where no matter what's going on in my life, I will cry watching yeah. the performance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it is like one of the most gut-wrenching depictions of grief I have ever seen put to film. And I know I'm sounding very hyperbolic right now, but it is the work Eileen Heckert does in this scene is just out of control. You're, I mean, you're dead on. It is one of the most, I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar. That's the other thing. When you talk about the performances in this film, three of these actors were nominated for Oscars. And I don't think any of them, no, none of them won. No. But, you know, both, both Patty McCormick and Eileen Heckert were nominated for Best Supporting. Nancy Kelly for Best Actress. And it's weird because later on, it's kind of got this reputation of melodrama, of the yeah. uh, the, perfor- the performances being maybe over the top because this is the theater cast. Yes. This is the stage cast. So they're doing, their performances are a little bigger. And even Robert Osborne criticized Nancy Kelly's performance as being maybe too big and saying that Mr. Leroy needed to rein them in a little bit. But I disagree (laughs) i disagree too i think the movie calls for big performances especially considering that it essentially takes place in one location Mm -hmm. the movie it really is filmed like a play in so many ways i think like nancy kelly's performance is devastating in its own way as well like when she's melting down towards the end you know with the scene with Leroy. And she's watching Leroy. It's like that's that whole scene is just it's so intense. And she's so good in that. And she just has reaches this boiling point that's been like bubbling throughout the whole movie. Yeah, it's one of those scenes where you see her being, you know, big uh, the whole time. And then there's that scene where, you know, there's a man on fire. Yeah. And we're not seeing it. We yeah. instead have to see her face and her reaction to it. And that needs to tell. I mean, of course, there's the music and, you know, the actor, Henry Jones's wonderful screaming, screaming uh, happening at the same time. But we have to like the gravity of the scene has to come from her performance in that moment. And it's great. Right. And also, this is an actor who, who now has to build themselves up to do the unthinkable. Right. Coming up. Right. And. And so she's has so restrained in that, in that next scene. Like she is completely dead inside mm-hmm. in that, in the following scene because she has worked herself up. She has just, she's lost everything. Like she yeah. is just 
lost it and she's completely stripped bare. And so by the next scene, she's just like, okay, this is what I have to do. I am on complete autopilot now and it's chilling. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) It's, but I keep Heckert, man. She is just like, and especially there's the added dimension too of being a recovering alcoholic Yes, and seeing that she's doing that drunk. And so often I will watch an actor give a performance through the filter, uh, you know, of, uh, the drunk, the al- yeah. the alcoholic, and it never. It so rarely feels right. It so yeah. rarely feels real in a way that I can resonate with and 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 really find myself in. And Heckert, man, he nailed it. She I nails mean, it as she a recovering alcoholic myself. Is like she nails that deep sort of humiliation it's like she's humiliating herself but it's not in an over-the-top way it's in a like very subtle way the indignities that you sort of go through when you're just drunk and saying shit and and forcing yourself out on the world the narrow eyes the laser focus the The change of tone between you know the screaming and crying to the like oh let me fix your hair or like or the snarky comments when she hugs her and says, like, you can come by and I'll give you a makeover and then, like, adds in the, if you're strapped for cash, I'll do yes. it for free or whatever. And it's like, Jesus, like, you you slip that dig in, too. Like, yeah, that the, there's like a weird, just a weird power in it. And yeah, her performance is, is one of my favorites of all time, period, in any movie ever. Oh, me too. I mean, I get, I get chills thinking about it. Like, it's one of my favorite scenes of all time in a movie it's like her performance is like yeah she should I, I don't even remember I always go back every once in a while and check who actually did win the Oscar that year but I don't remember who was now I don't either I don't either <laughs> Eileen Heckert was robbed <laughs> Eileen Heckert, I'm gonna make a shirt that says Eileen Heckert was robbed honestly that's a great shirt so okay this is the grandmama of the killer kid movies yeah it's based on the novel by william march in 1954 who is an interesting figure in his own right he died one month after the book was published and it was like his biggest success and it went on to become a broadway play and then a movie two years later and it was yeah it's the entire cast for the most part from the play directed by melvin Leroy, and it's I never know how to go, how to approach these things. Cause it's like, I could just give you this, the summary of this movie. Now, the fact is you should just see it. Yeah. There's so much going on. It is one of those films that you can, like you said, watch for years over and over again and still find new things in. I always forget the Dexter baby swap subplot. Like I always forget that that's in there until oh, yeah. I'm watching it. And then I'm like, Oh, that's right. Yeah. There's a whole other thing going on here. Yeah. It's one of those movies you don't, want to be doing something else while you're watching it because there are so many moments in it and so many facial expressions that inform like other stuff that's going on. And I mean, a lot of it is people talking, you know, and secrets being revealed. And that's a lot of where the horror comes in is these like ugly secrets being exposed to, to the light. And obviously the performances are horrific too specifically patty mccormick she's i mean what a talent where did she pull that from right how do you do that at eight did yeah, i think not- she might have actually killed someone i mean seriously like what was going on yeah. there? i mean in the, in the movie she was 10 yes. but 
she she did originate the role when she was eight. Like right. she started it when she was eight. And she loves it. Like if you ever watch an interview with her or read an interview with her, she loves that she got to do that at that age. She was just like, oh, I, I get to be a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, like. Right. Yeah. And like you said, it's the grandmother of bad kid movies. And yeah. I mean, at the time is like you you have children being these innocent little lambs on film or victims in film. And she was the threat. She's the villain. Mm-hmm. And in a very believable way. Right. A lot of killer kid movies to follow would either cop out with some sort of, well, this kid's been taken over by some outside, you know, demonic force usually. It's usually a possession issue. Or uh, some kind of, you know, zombie-ish virus. Or, you know, or they have some other supernatural element to them. Or exactly. they're not a kid. Like, that's the other thing is there's oh, killer right. kid movies where the reveal is that the kid is not a child. <laughs> right. <laughs> but she is just pure evil. She's just pure evil. And she's a psychopath and a narcissist. And yeah. she's very grounded in reality, which makes it so terrifying. Yeah, and she doesn't do anything big with it. You know, it's right. not like she's not cutting anybody's head off. She's not, you know, she's not... Right. She's just doing these simple, elaborate things in a way that amuses her yeah. to reach this conclusion. And it's always like she gets caught a couple times yeah. and just always has a way out of it. You know, she's she understands she's using the parameters that she understands of what society expects from her as a little girl. She uses that as like a cover yeah. so brilliantly. <laughs> get away with all these other little things she's like the ultimate example of toxic femininity she's like, <laughs> she wrote a penmark might be the original girl boss like she's yeah. just gonna go where she needs to go and she doesn't care who she murders along the way because she can turn it on mm-hmm. oh i have the prettiest mother <laughs> i have the I nicest mother and i noticed you know something new that i noticed which so seems so obvious now, but like a lot of narcissists, you know, they put on this facade of look at how great of a person I am, even though they're doing some pretty evil shit behind the scenes. And she does that. But I noticed this time around watching, she does pick and choose the adults that she treats with respect. And I noticed that the two adults she doesn't treat with respect are the ones below her station that are a different class than her, namely Leroy and Hortense. Mm-hmm. she treats them outwardly with disdain because they're disposable to her. She can't get anything from either of them, mm-hmm. but she's totally mask on for everybody else. And well, and furthermore, any of the other characters that she can get things from don't need to appeal to either of these characters in any way. Right. So she's automatically aware of this privilege over them. And yeah. you can see it even when she's dealing with Hortense, it's like a masked hostility. Yes. There's like a, she does that thing of she recognizes the other adults in the room do not think this woman is okay. Yeah. And so she appeals to that. She kind of looks to them for like, look at this fucking crazy lady. What is she yeah. doing? You know, she's very, she's very kind of passive aggressive about it. Whereas with, with Leroy, it's like she gloves off. She can just be fully hostile with him. Oh yeah. She's and a total no one's gonna... bitch to leave. Poor Leroy. <laughs> I mean, look, Leroy's a fucking creep. He is a creep. He's a little too invested in this eight-year-old girl. But to make anyone feel bad for Leroy, that is like a very big feat. Oh, yeah. You have to be a very recognizable kind of a problem. 
to make yeah. someone feel sorry for Leroy, right. who has like said out loud that he wants to try to have sex with the mother. Oh yeah. <laughs> but he's so great. Henry Jones is so incredible in that role too. He's amazing. Yeah, Leroy. Even just his like physicality, like in an earlier scene in the movie when they're walking outside or she's stamping outside because she didn't get the penmanship medal and he uh, splashes her with the with the hose and he does it again, you know, pretending like he's doing it on accident, but you can just tell he's doing it on purpose. And that's the thing about Leroy too, is that he is, in a way, he's a rival to Rhoda just in the sense that they're both, I mean, he even says it explicitly that like, we're, oh, we're the same kind of. Right. It's like, I know what's expected of me. I keep everyone's expectations of me very low. Like the him being, you know, whatever it is he's convinced people about where his mental capacity is at. Like, I don't want to make any judgments. He's, I don't know what the term they would have even used at, at the, in that year. Cause there's even that problematic line that one of the guys has, like they have some words for Leroy probably. Oh yeah. Like it's an act. He's this whole idea of, of where he's at mentally is at least partly an act that he puts on. Right. So people so that when he does stuff like splash her with the hose, he can do that. Yeah. And to him, he knows that he's doing it on purpose. But you know, maybe they buy that he's that he's that he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, he gives off the ah shucks, I'm just an uneducated handyman, the yeah. hired help, you know, I don't know any better. Yeah. But he is also truly shocked when he realizes yes. what Rhoda has done. Oh, yeah. And the look on his face is like priceless when he has that moment of realization. I mean, look, there's a lot of those. A lot of this movie is people realizing horrible things. <laughs> and it yeah. is, it's magical when it happens because, look, like I said before, the acting work in this movie is just like so good. Yeah. The acting's great. The writing's great. The music is okay. So I. In the opening scene and the closing scene, I'm like, this music is too much. Most of the film, the score, I think, is great. I agree with you. Yeah. I think the score is, is fantastic for a lot of the film. But the opening and the closing, I'm like, I'm being pulled in a lot of different directions right now. What is it about the score that you love? I'm well, not trying to disagree, I swear. No, it's the score, I would say, just throughout, just the little music cues, I would say throughout the film. And I, I do love the cues that are like, oh, this is a tender, vulnerable moment. As much as I love the cues of, you know, when she's with her father and she's realizing oh where she really comes from. Yeah. Like that moment, that music is like, gives me chills. It's very creepy. And, and even like the less noticeable or the less recognizable scores when they're, you know, when she's, she's reading the book, like, that's the other thing. That's like a whole, that's like a, it's not an Easter egg. It's just a little nugget in the film. The book she's reading to Rhoda, the one that is like the knight and the princess or whatever. It's not even a real book, but for my entire life, I always wanted to read that book. I'm very disappointed it's not a real book. It's called Inside the Garden Wall or Inside castle the Castle Wall. Wall. It's not a real book. Believe wow. me. It was just written for the movie. That's interesting. Play that they wrote that for the movie and, and even like art directed up a little prop yeah. book cover. Cause the other film we're going to talk about actually has a lot of like actual proper nouns in it. Like a lot of like references to real things. Yes. Whereas this movie, it sort of creates this, uh, some cultural items and lore. There's even a serial killer. There are, there are some serial killers that are mentioned that are actual, real, real life right. women. 
who existed. And then there is the one... Bessie Denker. Yes, Bessie Denker, who is Christine Penmark's actual biological mother, who is an amalgam, as far as I understand, of a few different actual serial killers. Right. Ruth Snyder, Belle Gunnis, mm-hmm. and Jane Toppin? Topin? Yeah. So in that vein, there's a lot of this true crime discussion yes. in it, and criminology and criminal psychology discussion, which will start pointing us to the reason I, I chose the other film. Can we talk about the uh, sort of true crime heavy element? Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you was, do you think that this movie informed an interest in that in you? You know what? I never thought about it until this viewing that I did. (laughs) Just because I was sort of aware of like, like I took notes for the first time watching this movie. So I I just was like, oh, is this why I was always fascinated by true crime? Because Monica Breedlove, she is like, if she were alive today, if she were a real person today, she'd be the type of woman who subscribed to all the true crime podcasts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She would be in all the Facebook groups. She might even be, you know, on the Reddit boards, on Unsolved Mysteries Reddit boards, like trying to figure out, trying to crack the case. Like she is that archetype of the true crime, middle-aged true crime woman fan. Yes. Which there are a lot of. Our audience for our show, a lot of women listen to us, a lot of women happen to like the true crime genre. It's very popular and it has been for a long time. And Monica Breedlove is like, I don't know, an early version of like the modern era of that, of that true crime stamp of someone who's really fascinated by it. Well, and then you also have the character of of Tasker, who is a true crime professional. Yeah, he's a criminologist. He's a criminologist, but he also writes about it. And then, and then Richard Bravo, who has, has covered serial killers and, and crime in he's like the done sort of the journalist he's like the true crime journalist yes yeah and monica like me she wants to hear all the gory details and she wants to hear the why did this person do this the psychology behind it and then there's you know christine who's sort of the opposite who's squeamish about all of that stuff mm-hmm Oh, yeah. yeah, she's, I don't want to hear about that. I don't, the, I don't read the newspaper. If I come across a story like that, I stop. Like, no. it's, she's very much like, I don't want to know these things. And to sort of like, to even drive the point home about Monica to really flesh her out as a character, there's also a very brief mention where she says that she, oh, my horoscope today said. So she's also in astrology. She's school. also, <laughs> she's also into astrology. <laughs> she's also like obsessed with, psychoanalysis yes and and that she would definitely follow like self-help influencers on instagram and stuff for sure yeah the irony of monica brelove that i've always found interesting is that she's obsessed with psychoanalysis and she reads all of this stuff about psychoanalysis but there is a full-on murdering psychopath right under her nose and she (laughs) never knows it she never once catches on to any of the many signifiers red that flag. Rhoda offers. The huge red flags. I mean, yeah. like, it couldn't be more clear. That is so funny. I didn't even think about that, Andy. <laughs> and, and Monica even does do the kind of like, hey, she's a girl boss thing when she talks yeah. about Rhoda being like, oh, she knows what she wants and she asks for it. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's because she wants everything. And yeah. she asks for it. And then if you say no, she kills you for it. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's also the way she asks for it. It's like, you yeah. know, she's just really demanding and thinks the world owes her absolutely everything. When she comes home after Claude Daigle drowns <laughs> and says, we didn't have lunch, Claude Daigle died, so can I have peanut butter? <laughs> I mean, it's like, so it's too perfect. Like that line delivery, can I have a peanut butter sandwich? It's incredible. And that is the first moment in the film where Nancy Kelly, Christine Penmark, where she notices this is odd behavior. Like, mm. you know, I mean, she had mentioned it before, like, oh, my daughter doesn't wear pants to the picnic and she doesn't you know necessarily get along with the other kids but it wasn't alarming to her until she was so flippant yeah exactly and then well then when she brings up the thing that happened in wichita with this post there's like a whole other thing where it's like oh wow there's a history here yeah and mom that stood out to christine but not enough at the time but now it's like oh right it's glaring yeah. Like, we got to talk about how you got that little thing over there. Yeah, you have some ball. trophies. Yeah. Let's talk about them. Dude, she keeps trophies. She keeps trophies. Yeah. <laughs> and she, you know, eliminates threats to her, <laughs> to her thing. Yeah, like she kills out of, she's an interesting serial killer because she kills out of necessity, but also for pleasure. Well, you kind of get the feeling, too, that maybe she's just discovering that there's a pleasure to it. That yeah. before it was a necessity thing. Like, to her, it was always like, she would maybe rash. Obviously, she's eight years old. She's not going to articulate any of this. But at some point in her, her brain, if there is a justification argument in there, it's, oh, well, I wanted this and he wouldn't give it to me. And, you know, it's his own fault. I mean, she even at one point says it's his own fault. You know, like, yeah. if he had oh, just yeah. given that to me, he wouldn't be dead. Well, I mean, real life serial killers, they have a evolution of their kills. You know, it's not the same signature from day one. It exactly. evolves into the same signature over time. It can, you know, but she's sort of figuring out. She's like, oh, I'm getting into my groove of killing people. And what's that going to look like in the future? Exactly. It's, you know, it's like with this movie, you find new things in it. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> she's... She finds new things in killing people. <laughs> and I think that that's what the end, towards the end, is supposed to kind of let you know, is that she doesn't need to kill Monica. There's no need for it. Right. And she, you, I don't even get the idea that she actually even really wants the bird. No. It's just, well, now I like doing this. Yeah. And so Monica's going to die tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> We're going sunbathing on the roof, way high up where no one can see it. <laughs> Like, how fucking dumb is her dad? Okay. Okay, can we talk about the dad? My whole life, I've always thought that this is the one weak link in the film. Mm -hmm. Just as an actor, no offense. He's just so dopey. And um, you know what? Maybe it's like, it's probably perfect casting that they made this guy so fucking dopey and oblivious to what's going on. Because his view of his child is so drastic. Like, he has no idea mm -hmm. why things culminated the way that they did at the end. Like, he's just like, oh, why would Christine do that? We were in love, damn it. Like, what the hell? There are a lot of little bits in the rest of the film that lead me to believe the movie has a sense of humor. Yes. Obviously. I mean, it definitely has a sense of humor, but that it has a, a sense of humor with something on its mind. Yeah. Or something to say. And it's that kind of stuff that leads me to believe that, yeah, it's intentional that he's this dopey and like all America. I mean, the fact that he works for the military, it's like, you know, it's a comment. 
because there are comments all over in this film and it's there's like the news my favorite is the news radio one the news report on the boy drowning during the field trip all of this talk about it and then anyway here's the weather yeah it's like (laughs) with mass shootings yeah yeah exactly it's like that's that was a joke even then Oh, totally. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. There are a lot. And even just like we just talked about, the fact that Monica couldn't even sniff Rhoda out is fucking hilarious. Yeah, it's it's so funny. The ending, the entire ending debacle, where the original ending of of the novel, from what I understand, but definitely in the play, is that Christine dies. Right. And Rhoda is well on her way to continuing to do this for the rest of her life she survives she survives and she's gonna keep doing this she wins essentially yeah and that was the original ending which again even in that self there's commentary there especially regarding the father he's her cover forever now yeah but then even the the ending that they changed it to is the most obvious fuck you ending yeah in anything ever (laughs) It's literally God strikes her with lightning. (laughs) I mean, and that just goes to show like the era of when this movie came out, because the reason they changed the ending for the film is because the morals, you know, dictate the the Hays Code. Yeah. Evil could not prevail. Evil could not prevail, which is interesting because nowadays you rarely see children being murdered in movies. But this was like, she's so bad. We have to literally strike her with lightning. Yeah, exactly. And there's this amazing irony in that about the fact that it's like, well, the letter of the law regarding the production code here is that crime does not pay. So a criminal cannot escape justice in the end of the movie. So what does that mean? I don't know. Let's kill a kid. It's so much more intense. (laughs) (laughs) And it's fucking lightning. It explodes, basically. It explodes. (laughs) it's one of those movies that like if you if you're watching this movie for the first time it's just like you you're just awestruck by that what the fuck just happened yeah (laughs) wait god i I don't even believe in god but it's like she got away with it you know man's not going to punish her so god has to it's literally while she's trying to like dispose of evidence right when she gets killed and then it's just the end that's it right it's that kind of stuff that lets me know like oh there's a sense of humor at work here so the the father is like this is being done intentionally yeah and just to talk about the moment immediately like before that where this is the first time in the movie we see her in action doing something bad everything else has just been talked about this is that's true this is the first time we see her being bad the action of it that is a really interesting fact. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the way, I, just something I noticed, just the way that she's sort of stalking down the street, like it's almost Michael Myers-esque, oh. you know? She's like a pro, just the way she's walking, like with the flashlight and just like stalking and she's just like very focused, like robotic almost. It's like very like what we would come to, you know, to see in serial killer slasher movies in the 70s, 80s. And she's even wearing this raincoat, which is a thing that comes up later. Children in raincoats. And especially in one of my favorite killer kid movies of all time, Alice Sweet Alice. Love it. And this movie, Bad Seed kind of sets up a lot of the tropes that we see to come, but also in a way that's like treats the subject with arguably more respect than others. Yeah. Because it also does have something very serious on its mind, which is this idea 
of, you know, the genetic predisposition to psychopathy. And they even debate that in the, in the film is mm-hmm. they talk about, and this is in the fifties, you know, this is pre, you know, mind hunter era where they were analyzing uh, serial killers and they came up with the triad, you know, like indicators that someone's going to be a serial killer. Is it nature versus nurture? So this is pre all of that. And they didn't even have the term serial killer when this movie was made. And, and Richard Bravo, uh, Rhoda's non-biological grandfather, which we find out, he doesn't believe, but he can't believe. Exactly. The reveal is that he has an emotional stake in one of these things being true over the other. Right. And, and yeah, and that is also a commentary in and of itself is that only kids from poor homes can be bad. It can't be someone from a higher social standing or class that can turn and can be monsters. And uh, it's, it's it's this idea, yeah, this that one day it just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, uh, I mean that even like you said that that is Halloween. Michael Myers kills his sister when he's six years old it's, for no reason. For no reason, and he's he lives in a nice suburban home with a nice suburban family, no problems, and it's. That idea that even the doctors are debating it at the end with, you know, well, you'd have to be some kind of idiot or whatever to believe in it. Like, if we believe that bullshit, we'd have to, you know, it's funny because in that scene, there's almost an explicit message uh, of the film's agenda, which is if we believe that kind of stuff, we'd have to stop adopting kids and having kids, period. And it's like, yeah, stop. (laughs) No more kids. We're done. (laughs) Right. You never know. You just uh, never know. Because, I mean, obviously, I don't believe that. But, no, you know. but, you know, and and psych, like criminologists today, like, you know, they're still analyzing, you know, what makes a serial killer. And you just, you know, there are factors that are common among serial killers that you can point to, such as like, oh, this uh, these serial killers, they all had a head injury when they were kids. They were all bedwetters or there's certain things that we point to that are like patterns i guess but i do think like the real horror is in like a michael myers or a road of penmark where it's just seemingly out of fucking nowhere yeah well and that's the i mean that's even in the name penmark it yeah can't, it's it's in it's an ink you can't erase it it's a stain in your bloodline like, yes yeah. that idea that like it even that means we're we're thinking about things like fate versus free will the movie's got a lot on its mind and i and, and i love that i i think I wish this movie was more sort of explored within like the horror community, because I do think, like I mentioned before, with the sort of Michael Myers-esque walk that she does at the end, I do think there are a lot of elements to this movie that would become tropes. 100%. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, that we see in Killer Kid and even non-Killer Kid horror later yeah. on that can be traced back to, you know, at least at, at one step, along the way, this film. Even films about horror films about grief, which there are dozens, I mean, hundreds of horror films. That's a very popular theme. Eileen Heckert's entire thing in this film is like one of the most perfect portrayals of grief I've ever seen. It's, she nailed it. I mean, it's like, it's visceral. It's like, you feel it. And I, I literally, I can't help but like well up when I watch her. It's just so like, it knocks you on your ass when you watch it. I mean, it's it's unlike anything else you've seen in that time period almost. It's almost, it's so raw for the time. It's like, obviously this is like 
postcode. There's no like, you know, this is the 50s. There's no bad language in the film. There's no nudity or even there's not even any blood that we see in the film. But this feels so like, are we supposed to be watching this <laughs> right now? Yeah. Like, it's so vulnerable and intense. Yeah, you want to look away. You feel like, oh God, am I? <laughs> is this somebody, okay? Can somebody call her a cab? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her husband doesn't seem real capable of handling this yeah. situation. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I love it. When you talk about this film not getting the recognition it deserves in horror conversations, the irony is that the other film that I chose kind of for a while at least got a lot of recognition despite not really being a horror movie. <laughs> Personally, I consider it in the genre, but there are a lot of other elements to this movie that you could consider it a fantasy movie. And by that, I mean, I'm talking about Curse of the Cat People. Curse of the Cat People, yes. And there's a lot, look, there's a lot of killer kid movies I considered, but I, I would have paired this with, let me read the list. <laughs> these, are, these are things I considered. <laughs> Who Can Kill a Child, Bloody Birthday, The Children 1980, The Children 2008, The Good Son, The Pit, The Other, Orphan, The It's Alive Trilogy, Shock, Alice Sweet Alice, Ills, a.k.a. Them, The Brood, The Godsend, Village of the Damned, Children of the Corn, Devil Times Five, Benny's Video, and <laughs> we need to talk about Kevin. So there's a lot that I considered. I even considered Before I Wake very briefly. Because that's a misdirect one. Yeah. I really didn't want to go with just another killer kid movie. And then for the first time ever, I finally watched the sequel to Val Luton's The Cat People. And I was like, holy shit, this is the one. It, it was such an inspired choice. And I had never seen it. I have seen Cat People, but I had never seen this one until the other night. And I didn't know where this movie was going to go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I really was like, what? It was like, because Amy is so drastically different than Rhoda in every way, except yeah. for the fact that they're adorable blonde children. Yeah. But her personality wise, temperament wise, I mean, she's gentle as a lamb and there's empathy there. There is like real human blood coursing through her veins. She's, yeah, she's almost... She's almost the polar opposite. She's almost yeah. like too, she's too empathetic. There were so many interesting direct dichotomies in the curse of the cat people to the bad seed that it made it such an interesting companion. Like there were the similarities, but then there were the like direct differences mm -hmm. such as the way that Amy re, uh, responds to other people in the world and how, even how she treats the housekeeper Oh, Edward. How she treats Edward, who's like, Edward is also the opposite of Leroy. He's like, he's like yeah. the kindest soul. Like, protect Edward at all costs. Yeah, Edward is, it's it's a fascinating thing because he he was in three Val Luton movies. He actually was popular because he, his name, the actor's name is Sir Lancelot. Yeah. He was a Calypso singer who got his big break before Val Luton, but then he was in I Walked With a Zombie. And he was an influence on Harry Belafonte. And it's one of those things where you see his performance and you're like, especially in that scene where he makes Amy promise not to go back to the Farron house. Yeah. You're like, it's a real shame. He's not 
playing the teacher or something. It's a real shame that this, that this is such an artifact of its time Yeah, that he's, we're seeing him in this like subservient role, but you know, I, I don't know. He's great. (laughs) I just, I love him so much. And the way she treats him. That's the other thing is that the characters do all treat him with respect. And, and their relationship is just so pure. It's like one of just like respect and, and care you know, he treats her with like the tenderness that she doesn't even, that she does not get from her father, which what, that was the la- one of the last things we DM'd each other is we can't wait to talk about how much I fucking hate this dad. Can't wait to talk about how much I hate Amy's dad. Look, I'm gonna His assume- name is Oliver Reed of all I'm things. Gonna, I'm going to assume you were also a weird kid growing up. Oh yeah. No, this, that was the thing. I watched Curse of Cat. And again, I've never seen it before recently. I've seen cat people so many times because I never got, I mean, there's things I, I get why it's respected. Yeah. I get why it was a hit. But for some reason, every time I watch it, I'm like, it doesn't do it for me. You it know? doesn't it, do it for me either. It's yeah. It's just it, like, it I want to watch the wolf man. I get it. You want to not show the monster. I want to see the fucking monster. I kept waiting to see the cat person. But the cat person never came, and it just made me sad for Lady. Rachel, we were the cat people the whole time. We were the cat people we made along the way. I mean, that's the other reason I chose this movie, I think, is because we're both cat people. Oh, my God. I mean, it was, yeah, it was like a perfect companion piece on several levels, including the fact that both of us are crazy cat people. And that both of us were the weird kids growing up. Like, I, yeah. that's the thing is I watch this movie and I'm like, I'm Amy. Yeah. I, that was my fucking childhood. Yes, me too. I mean, that really got me watching her. Just the sort of silent pain of mm-hmm. feeling like you just are not matching up with the with your peers. And I know there's an intersection of like, you know, the horror kids and the weird kids. And like, that was me. Like, you know, I, I'm, I know that was you too. Is like, mm-hmm. and I just felt so much of her. Like I was definitely more gregarious than her, but at, at my core, I was the weird kid like her mm-hmm. and not in a quirky twee way. Like, you know, and I wasn't like antisocial. We should be worried. I mean, people were worried about me. Um, and fortunately I didn't have dick parents like, dad yeah right like if i'd had a dad like that who fucking knows how i would have turned out oh my god like thank god i had hippie parents who were like (laughs) very supportive of me expressing myself and let me wear the weird clothes i wanted to wear to school and and you know they nurtured the uh odd things about me and they you know took me to a lot of museums and like i'm very lucky in that respect I was very lucky that I had the weird kid mom. My mom was a weird kid when she was a kid. She was also kind of like Amy and she grew up watching the bad seed too. So it's like, I'm very lucky that I had that. Yeah. I'm, I'm very lucky. I had, you know, look, my parents have their own problems, but I'm, I'm lucky. I had that in that respect that they didn't think that there was anything wrong with me or that, Oh, she just needs to, join the soccer team or she needs to do girl scouts or you know like if i got tired of doing something like some enrichment activity if i was like i don't feel like this is for me they didn't force it on me Mm -hmm. yeah um i never i never had that well my kid doesn't quit stuff (laughs) and uh yeah and even when i was like doing terrible in school it's like my mom knew that 
it was probably because I had maybe a learning disability or processed information in a more artistic way, uh, you know. So, so seeing Amy butt heads with her dad, and and she didn't even. It was really one sided because she's just so gentle. She's the, so great, and Ann Carter's performance is so like she's precocious in that you know child actor way. Yeah, but it doesn't. It's always genuine. It's always earnest. You believe everything she's giving you. She's not like irritating, like a Disney. No, yeah. You know, show actor, it, she's just she's believable as a as a child. In the other way, she's like the polar opposite of Rhoda. Just in her behavior, is like she's truthful almost to a fault. Like Rhoda, everything is is a mirage. Mm-hmm. Amy is like everything's all out on the table. Like yeah. she's like, yeah, I was playing with this lady in the yard. This is what I was doing. Yeah, and well, and, and it's not that she doesn't get it because she's still even. In a way that Rhoda does as well, she de- she still does demonstrate that she understands what is expected of them superficially, what is expected right. of her superficially as a quote unquote good girl. Right. You know, she even has that conversation with her dad, like, well, it's like I do this and I do this, and then I'm a good girl, basically. She wants to please the adults. She thinks she's supposed to please the adults in her life, and and she yes. she tries, but ultimately she. She's like, I have to be, she can't not be true to herself. Yeah. She understands when things are important to her. Yeah. And this film is, it's interesting in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of parallels between it and the bad seed in that, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of add up in addition to these, you know, there are these dichotomies, these diametrically opposed, you know, things that you can line up and say, okay, well, the housekeepers, you know, we got Leroy who is, you know, this bastard. (laughs) And then you've got, Edward, who is so great, yeah, and deserves more, and then, and then the treatment of both of them, you know. But you also do have some, you know, these kind of similarities. There's a matronly figure mm-hmm. in both of their lives that are that see these little girls and and think they're special. Yeah, and of course, yeah. it's Monica Breedlove in the Bad Seed, but in the Curse of the Cat People, it is Julia Farron, yeah. who is a character. Right. Everything right. with Julia Farron and Barbara Farron is like, what's going on there? What is going on? There's a whole movie. There's about a whole just movie. them. First of all, the movie's only like 70 minutes long. So something must have got left on the cutting room floor. Because yeah. I don't know what the fuck happened. Was she an imposter? I, right. I don't know. She, she, like, what's this story? It's very, yeah. it's very Shirley Jackson. Yes, but it's even more interesting, you know, because behind the scenes, because Robert Wise, who directed The Haunting, the adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel, this was his first directing job uh, on a feature was Curse of the Cat People. And I could go on and on about the stuff you see in this movie that you also later on see in The Haunting, but I won't. It's just, yeah, that whole thing with with Julia Farron and and her her maybe daughter, maybe not Barbara. Where she Julia Farron's this old Broadway actress. Ah, oh, she's so, the, when she tells the story of this of the headless horseman. I wanted to live in that house. I wanted to like really like I I loved when we got to be in that house. It was like it's the ultimate childhood fantasy of the old maybe witch who lives on your block. Yeah, it's what you always hope to run into as a 
as a weird horror kid. Yeah, you know, it is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the, they even say it. It's the old dark house. And yeah. the kids even say that a witch lives in it. And there's even, like, Val Luton is kind of famous for this, you know, ambiguity in his movies uh, regarding whether or not there are supernatural elements with leaning heavily towards the side of, no, there's nothing supernatural about this story. It's right. all just, we are superstition informs that. But in this house, there are arguably genuinely supernatural things going on. There's like paranormal <laughs> phenomenon happening in yes. this house. That house exists on like another dimensional plane. Like it is, yeah. it's fucking weird shit's going on there. Mm -hmm. Whatever the story is with Julia and Barbara, it's like, I want to know. I, I desperately wanted to like really dig into their relationship and what went wrong along the way and like what trauma occurred. That yeah, is Barbara a ghost? Yeah, <laughs> right. I was like expecting the psycho skeleton reveal. Sort of like, oh, has she even not been here the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when only uh, Amy can see her. One of them has to be a ghost. One it's either Julia or Barbara. One of them is a ghost or no, it's one of them might have dementia or the other one might genuinely be an imposter. I don't know. I mean, I really would love to see some deep digging on a Reddit fan theories board about this movie. <laughs> Because yeah. you can come up with the most insane fan theories about this film in yeah. so many different aspects of it. It's great. Oh yeah. It, well, it's it's like Irena. What's she yeah. doing? Is she is she real or did she just see the picture and then hallucinate? But also, did she pin a fucking thing on her jacket? Right. If she's not there. How did she do that? And we don't actually do we see her dead body in Cat People or do we just see the panther? I do think we see, I don't know if we see her body, but it's pretty much explicated that she died. Unless she faked her death. I don't That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm Did she fake her death? That is a fan theory I want dug into. Well, that's the other thing is that this movie has so little to do with that film. It's the same oh, characters. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that it's called Curse of the Cat People is incredibly misleading. Yes. Because the original title that, uh, that Luton wanted for it was Amy and Her Friend. Because this is also arguably Luton's most personal movie. There's actually a lot of his real life in this film, and you know, and that's that's just one of the benefits of working with the, it was it uh, it's Dewitt Bodine who wrote a number of his other films, and he he kind of worked with a lot of the, the same cinematographer, the same composer. He had a team that he worked with regularly in this right. time that he was with RKO, but RKO had already imposed the titles for films. That, that well, Luton they wanted was doing. It to be a box office draw. They wanted people in the seats, and, yeah, and cat I, people was a huge success. Yeah, and they had to cram that one cat in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> Kitty. <laughs> I mean, I don't care. I will always like if you put a cat in the movie, I'll at least always love that. A hundred percent. You have to watch one of my current favorite movies that I only discovered a few years ago about the cat that inherits a baseball team. <laughs> It's called it's called rhubarb, and it's Whoa. a cat that inherits a baseball team. And it, I think sometime in the forties they made it. Look, it's fucking wild. I have to see that. You have to see because it. I love baseball and I love cats. Yeah, me too. I'm like, did yeah. they make this movie for me? Did someone <laughs> go back in time and invent this for me? It's the perfect movie, and it's so <laughs> silly and stupid, and I just adore it. But anytime, I don't know. There's something also about old movies with cats in them. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I, I yeah. love anytime they appear. Supposedly, Val Luton himself was, a, was an allurophobe. Is that a cat phobic? Cat phobic. 
Oh. Afraid of Cats, which oh. is very interesting to me that he made two cat people movies. Yeah, what's that about? I don't know. But again, it's misleading because there's no this, cat people. It's there's just... no cat people in this. The curse of the cat people is maybe mental illness. I don't know. Yeah. And again, like the parallel to the bad seed, there's a family secret. There's a family secret. Uh, family yeah. Secret. Questioned parentage. Questioned parentage. Yeah. Hereditary, like trauma mm-hmm. and mental illness. There's a whole thing going on here. Like I, I always like to, whenever I do one of these, I like to write down all of the things the film share in common. Mm-hmm. We have a strained mother-daughter relationship. Yep. Although in, in Cat People, it's the Farrens. Yes. We have uh, both girls demonstrate a knowledge of what is expected from them behavior-wise. We have a significant piece of jewelry given to the girl by an old matronly figure. Yes. And a significant pinned on your clothes piece of flair thing, like a brooch. We have flair. Yeah, it's a brooch in this and a penmanship medal or badge in the bad seed. That's right. We have, you know, the aforementioned older women mentors. We have a field trip, a class field trip with a body of water. In in Curse of the Cat People, it's when they go to Sleepy Hollow. (laughs) There's that whole thing. All right, there's subplot of oh and yeah. also here's the headless yeah. person lore yeah which also you know interestingly enough in both films there's a piece of folklore that is shared in bad seed it's more kind of metaphor in cat people it's more sort of pathetic fallacy or or like a, a tone creating a tone mm-hmm. but it's the headless horseman in cat people and in it's the myth of the changeling in the bad seed oh well that was um, i thought the headless horseman folklore aspect to curse of the cat people is interesting just in a lot of amy's reaction to it because that is such a thing that happens to you as a kid like you will hear some folklore and then you just can't stop thinking about it yeah and like everything you hear even the car rumbling down the street you're like oh my god is that the headless horseman yeah all all of the stuff that they do in this film regarding the use of light shadow and sound design to give you a feeling rather than to show you something explicitly. Yes. You know, and that's Robert Wise and Val Luton. That's both of those guys did that a lot in their careers. But in this film, particularly, it's used to put you inside, you know, the mind of a child and and how imagination works and how, you know. And even the way they lit Barbara's face when she was menacingly, you know, towering over her she was you know at the bottom of the stairs but she was still seemingly like this looming figure just the the shadows on her face that made it look like a skull almost it was very creepy yeah yeah it, and then the, the thing in the backyard too where simone simone as arena arena's ghost imaginary arena whoever she is when she's like let me show you my present and it's like she just like trips out for a minute she's yeah. just like hallucinating these lights <laughs> and shit yeah, and 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 Irena's personality was like so vastly different from her personality in Cat. She was so tortured mm-hmm. and just damaged in Cat People, and this she was literally like just she's magic. She's magic, and she's she's loved. a fairy. She's a fucking fairy godmother. Yeah, and she's so content and at peace. Oh my god! And, yeah, and I think that's something as a kid who feels lonely and alone in the world. You just want that figure that can hold you and tell you, like, you're no, you're okay, just the way that you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could almost say 
that Irena in this film was created out of darkness by magic, which is literally a line in the fucking fairy tale that she's reading to Rhoda in the bad seed, which is just another, uh, it's another connection that happily I made accidentally while watching it. I'm, I'm going with it. I like that. Both films have featured the child that goes out at night alone. Both films feature a concerned parent. We will get to that. In both films, the girl assaults a young boy on a field trip. <laughs> when she slaps that kid in Curse of the Cat People, it's amazing. I burst out laughing. It was yeah. perfect. Both feature a nosy teacher that makes house calls. We yes. have Miss Miss Fern All the in Bad Seed and Miss Callahan. Dude, if one of my teachers showed up at my house, I would be fucking mortified. Oh my God, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, please don't. Please don't come here. Like, cause if it's if it's a teacher I don't like, I yeah. definitely don't want you here. And if it's a teacher I do like, please don't look at my parents. Yeah, don't judge me, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so there, there's all of these little like superficial connections that I see in the films that that I always like to see. Okay, how much do they have in common here? Where where are the connections I can make? But also thematically, the big thing for me between both of these films is a concern with criminal psychology or child psychology. And in The Bad Seed, it's that nature versus nurture. Nature might actually be the key element. And in this film, it's kind of the opposite. It's this idea, not necessarily just of nurture, but of, you know, the the, the book that's referenced by Miss Fern is the inner, she calls it the inner life of childhood, but I believe the actual title of the real world book is The Inner World of Childhood, which was, I think, published in 1927 by Francis G. Wicks, mm-hmm. a child psychologist that caught on so much that Carl Jung wrote an introduction to it in a 1931 edition. But it's all about this idea that kids, especially lonely kids, will have will create these little fantasies and keep it secret from adults. And adults will often misinterpret that and take it to be these other things. And in their concern and in their, in their drive to do the right thing, will maybe overcompensate and threaten that child's development. Right. And that's what's at work here. And it's a much, it's like almost the opposite of the bad scene. It's almost like, Christine, calm down. She's going to be fine. I mean, obviously not in that movie. Right. But in this movie, we have the character of Oliver Reed, who is such a piece of shit. Ugh. (laughs) Such an awful father. I hate him. I mean, Amy, look, Amy's a little weird, but... I'm not concerned about a kid like Amy. I want more Amy's out there in the world. Someone who is genuinely empathetic and and has a soul and is open has an open mind and wants to learn and is sort of fascinated by things. I mean, Amy doesn't have a mean bone in her body. No, she doesn't. She <laughs> likes stories. She likes sto- she likes her stories and she's like kind to everyone that she meets, even her asshole dad, like she's willing to give him a listen. Mhm. The only thing Amy does that kind of, I'm like, meh, is when Irena is doing this, you know, I guess some witch shit. Yeah. <laughs> She's like burning some leaves in the backyard. She's like, that's boring. Yeah. She's like, let's play house instead. And I'm like, what? That was the most interesting thing that was happening. Yeah. Someone- you get, you got, you got like a spell going on and you want to <laughs> play house. What is wrong with you? That part was fucking baffling to me. I was like, no, that is exactly the kind of weird shit I would have wanted to be like, let's get into this more. Let's yeah, talk this about is, what's going this on. This is what true weird kids are about. Yeah. Which, 
I mean, when she does do the house thing, though, and she starts naming her dolls and she's like, this one's good and this one's good sometimes and this one's no good at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, right. that's great. Yeah. It's just great. And her dad just doesn't get it. And he even has that when he's like, I built you a ship. Fuck you. You built that for yourself. Don't yeah. lie to her, your daughter. He's like the classic. He wants her to be into what he's into. Yeah. She's yeah, just exactly. Not, and that's okay. Yeah. You know? My dad really wanted me to, I mean, he didn't like force it on me, but yeah, he wanted me to be into cycling as much as he was into cycling when I was a kid. And I could not fucking care less about riding a bike when I was a kid. And like my dad, he's a professional cyclist. And so like, of course he wanted me to ride a bike. And like, I'm really glad that he was like, oh, she likes theater. She likes doing theater. And he supported that. Funnily enough, I did end up getting into cycling and much later in life and you know it's like yeah well eventually i came around you know but yeah he really wants his child to be into shipbuilding which is you know what we see a lot more <laughs> in the first film but he's like has this stupid fucking model ship and he's like isn't this great she's like yeah it's cool whatever and he, <laughs> whatever he's so enraged by that he cannot stand it yeah. Oh, uh, you need these this thing with this friend again. It's lies. You spoil this child. Bah, bah, bah. I hate him. I don't like him. Even like the present opening scene, they weren't opening the opening the presents yet. But first, there was so there was like a hostility. Like I was like, this is like one of those Christmases. Mm -hmm. It's gonna blow at any minute. Like I could feel the tension. Yeah, and then when they start singing, I'm just like, oh god. Yeah. I feel for this kid right now. <laughs> but I, again, like I just, the whole movie, I'm like, oh, Amy, I'm Amy. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm Amy. I just I can't want to hug her. Be like, it'll yeah. get better. And Val Luton too, like the, the idea, the story about the putting the, the mail tree, putting the mail, the birthday invitations in the tree. Right. Val Luton did that when he was a kid, supposedly. Wow. Like his right. father told him that there was a magic mail tree and he did that with his sister. It wasn't his birthday. It was his sister's. So he ruined his sister's birthday party. Oh my God. But, That's worse. Yeah. But supposedly he did that. And the, the, and then a lot of, I also read that the relationship between Amy and her father was kind of informed by his relationship with his daughter, which is interesting because he was the weird kid growing up who yeah. also said that he never really felt like he fully grew up yeah but in that relationship i guess he identifies with the father which is very interesting wow because maybe it's just a role thing maybe it's just a this is how we were conditioned growing up and this is you know he's overly paranoid that his kid will have the same struggles that he had there is that moment in Curse of the Cat People where Oliver, Ollie gives his reasoning for being upset. And it is that he saw what, what he interprets to be mental illness. He saw what that did to Irena. Right. Granted, there were, he's oversimplifying it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it is like a genuine concern. And it's like, I don't want my daughter, which is weird because it's like, well, she's not related to her. Like it's not, in this case, it's not hereditary. Yeah. And in this I, case, it's not genetic. Right. And and just the level that he took it to, you're almost like you're expecting that. You're like, well, why are you worried? Like, she's not related to Arena. There's no hereditary illness that she could have gotten from Arena. 
Look, I don't think he's over Arena personally. I mean, no. he's pictures of her in his drawers. That's fucking like I understand you still have pictures of them, but they were like secret stash pictures almost. Well, they weren't even really that secret. It's like <laughs> they were put them in something that you know you're the only one that opens. Why is it in a drawer in the friggin' living room? It was so weird. Like, and and the wife was kind of like annoyed by it, but not annoyed enough. I don't know. It was just such a, like, I wanted to dig into their relationship so much. I mean, more. look, Irena, Irena's hotter than, Come than Alice by like a lot. So I get she, it. She is so hot. And so much of cat people was about Ollie's raging hard on. Yeah. That he yeah. never got to do anything with. And just that rage, that simmering rage that they never got to consummate their marriage. And, and <laughs> God, poor Arena. Like, yeah, poor Arena. So, I think that's the other thing too. Is it's like this is the film where if you see cat people and then you go to see this and you're like, okay, well, where's the fucking cat people? Yeah, it's like no, it's not about that. This is about sequel wise. It's about Arena's redemption. Yeah, and showing Oliver to be the insecure dickhead that he actually is. Ollie's really the villain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. Always the villain of the story. It's not Arena possibly descending from wildcats. It's Ollie <laughs> in his closed-mindedness. Yeah, it is. Another thing that's funny too is that both films have the character who perceives the little girl to be a threat to them yeah. and decides to do something about it. Yes. And in that, in this film, it's Barbara Farron. Right. What's interesting is Rhoda doesn't get to kill Monica Breedlove. No. In a way, Amy does kill <laughs> Julia Ferris. She does technically kill her. God. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't mean to, but no, like but her actions lead to her death. And it's it's kind of like I wonder how that's going to be for Amy growing up. Like what where's yeah. what kind of trauma must she have surrounding that? I, <laughs> Maybe these are the questions I shouldn't be asking. No, it's like, again, what you said is like the parents overcompensating to not make their kid weird will infinitely make them actually like more fucked up. Yeah. 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 If you, if you drive your kid away, if you spank your kid, (laughs) your kid might run away to an old lady's house in the middle of the night. And then that old lady will fucking die. And then that old lady's daughter will try to murder your daughter. But then your daughter will think she's a ghost of your dead ex-wife. And then we'll hug her. And then everything will be kind of fine, maybe. Yeah. And then immediately after, he holds Amy and he's like, "Eh, I guess you're kind of weird, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I... When I was a kid, my father didn't understand me for a very long time. He wasn't quite, he wasn't nearly as bad as Oliver was. Yeah. But he didn't get me. And then eventually he got me and now we're cool. But I don't know if Amy's going to be cool. No, I think this is like the pivotal turning point in her life that sets her trajectory of bad decisions. (laughs) Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) Amy's going to turn into Hortense Daigle. She's going to turn to Hortense. She's going to get a drinking problem. Oh my God. We should write this sequel. We absolutely should. We Darn. absolutely should. I also still just want to see the movie that Val Luton initially pitched for cat people, which was a Serbian village gets invaded by Nazis during World War II, but 
then all of the villagers turn into cat monsters and kill all the Nazis. Wow. That's amazing. Right? That's right up my alley. Yeah. I really, it's cats and stuff. I mean, that's the other thing too, right? This movie was just like, all of these Val Luton movies for RKO was just RKO being like, well, <laughs> Universal's doing well with their monsters, so we should make some monsters. We can't use any of the monsters they're using. Wolfman was a big hit for them. So how about, what if we have, God, what's like a wolf? Um, cat, a cat, okay? And what if, okay, they only have one, just one Wolfman? We're going to have lots of these cat uh, men. You know what? Mix it up. Cat people. Okay. A co-ed. whole of cats. <laughs> and then the movie they give us is not that <laughs> at all. There are no monsters in it whatsoever. Yeah. I just like to imagine that somebody, some poor schmuck in the prop department constructed this elaborate cat suit. Oh, wow. And by yeah. the time they made the movie, he's like, God damn it. He never got to use it. He's like, am I going to get reimbursed for this shit? Yeah. Well, and then when Val Luton's like, okay, we're going to make the leopard man now. And that same guy is like, no fucking way. We're using the same suit. I already made it. That's it. And then they don't even use it for that because there's no leopard man in that movie either. (laughs) Like Val Luton really was kind of like the forebearer of the, of the like pre post horror almost where he's like making these bait and switch movies where it's like, nah, it's not really that thing you thought it was. Yeah, it's not really about that. You don't have to see cat people to get Curse of the Cat People, but you have to see cat people to get the title of Curse of the Cat People. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, if you've never seen cat people and you're watching Curse of the Cat People, you're like, wow, this movie's really good and it's saying a lot of things. (laughs) Not at all what I expected. Not at all about cats. Don't know why it's called what it is. Did they put the wrong title on it? Because there's no cat people. There's no curse that I can discern. They even put a fucking cat on the cover of this movie. Yeah. When they put a menacing looking cat, you really think it's going to be about cats terrorizing this suburban neighborhood. Instead, it's just uh, there's a cat on a tree and then later there's a stuffed cat with a bird in its mouth. Right. God, that scene is so great though. All the, again, yeah, the old dark house stuff going on with the Farron house where she's exploring it is so great. Yeah. I mean, that that's where they, they put all the budget into that house and did yeah. the set dressing for that. It, it's gorgeous. I It's in LA. You should buy it. I should buy it. Yeah. Okay. Buy it. I think okay. it's on West Adams. Yeah. You should buy it. <laughs> right. I'm a millennial. I should just buy a house. <laughs> yeah. Stop eating <laughs> avocado toast for like two weeks. Why didn't I think of that before? Sure. Yeah. I can buy property. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. I felt that this was a good pairing, especially considering the fact that I know you're like me and that you want to do the non-obvious choice for whatever the thing is. Yeah. And you're very much like me, obsessive in finding that. So I very much appreciated this because when I watched the movie, I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't read up anything about this. I wanted to be surprised. And I was. (laughs) Even having seen cat people, I was still, I was expecting, oh, he's got to put cats in this one. He's got a cat monster in this. There's, there's got to, because usually in the sequel, there's a lot more schlock or, you know, they'll up the ante. Or they'll be like, all right, here's what we got to do this time to get more people in the seats. No, it was actually nope. more subtle 
Yeah. I mean, it was, like you said, it's debatable if it's in the horror genre at all. Like, I, I, I'll, let's consider this horror canon. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. I, I think everything, and this is, this was the last contemporary horror film that Val Luton did. The next two films he did after this kind of really don't qualify as horror. Yeah. And then after that, the next three horror movies he did, which were the last horror movies he did, were all period pieces mm. where it was sort of like, there's actually kind of like a, a, marked separation between this as like the end of phase one of his RKO career. Yeah. And then the next three horror pictures he did that are very different. And I don't know what all that is. It's just to say that I I do think it is, it is, it's counted. It is a ghost story. It is. It is. I think, I think it qualifies as a ghost story. There is a haunted house in it. Yes. There is, you know, the imaginary friend element is there. There are debatable supernatural phenomena, maybe. And it also is like, you know, at one point that woman is going to kill that kid. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, it, I agree. It, it does qualify as horror. And I wish more people, I'm mean, like, I think it's mostly largely people outside of the horror community are the people who are like, this didn't scare me. This isn't a horror movie. I hate that shit I so much. Hate that shit. I wouldn't really, <laughs> I'm considering more of a thriller. You know what? Get out of my life. Yeah, fuck you. I mean, you fuck get to, no. Right thriller. Get out of here. I'll give you a thriller. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I mean, this is, it is one of my favorite things to, to get enraged about. And I, I, it always happens. It happens a lot more now, maybe because we're just bombarded with so much, so much different media, but my favorite thing to get enraged about as a horror fan has been over the last, I don't know, five or so years, elevated horror. Ugh, yeah, it's so stupid. And like, again, like Luton in a lot of ways was kind of where a lot of that can be traced back to. Yeah. But also like he, we called these movies horror movies. Yeah. Even if people were saying that, oh, they were, they're a little different than what you're used to. Honestly, at this point, there was no such thing really as horror fandom. That wouldn't happen for like until... I think it was 52 when really? shock theater happened and you know, the entire generation of monster kids was created because television channels were showing universal monster movies. Yeah. But they were horror films. They were called horror films at the time. We still call them that. Yes. And if these are horror, then your fucking shit's horror too. And don't, it doesn't need to be separated by name because, and yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is the thing that I rant and rave about is yeah. the like, no, you don't, you don't get to tell me that, your movie isn't horror or is somehow better than other horror movies. Right. It's like this concept of elevated horror is so that people who don't like the genre don't feel icky about liking a horror movie. They're like, Oh, but this is a film. Yeah. There's like horror has always had these things on its mind, whether or not you think it's prestigious enough. Right. I think people, that's why I really encourage people you know, whether they're within the horror fandom and people especially outside of it to watch the older movies. And I like, you know, this is like, I can't pick a favorite. I mean, maybe I can pick a favorite decade for horror, but not really because I find value in like all of the decades really. And I really have always liked old movies like black and white movies. I really, I really like them a lot. And yeah, they're you know, a lot of the times they're different, you know, of course they're different than the horror movies from the eighties and nineties and whatever, but there's still value there. And it is also, I'd like to see where it began and the tropes where they began. That's of course fascinating to me. 
I, that's why I do encourage people to like go back and watch those. And you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised if you just yeah. sat down and watched them. I am. That's my whole thing is, is I like to try and go back and be like, okay, where are this, you know, and just see the, be surprised by the stuff that's like, Oh, fuck like this movie did this 30 years before this other movie that i thought was the first movie to do that like you're always the, the yeah. i mean even me i don't ever want to be like i'm the authority blah blah because i'm still always learning shit and oh, yeah. like curse of the cat people alone i can't i'd never seen it yeah and still i mean that's a great thing about the genre is there's endless movies for me to watch that i still haven't seen for whatever reason and i've seen a ton of them because you know throughout childhood it's been my favorite genre of movie and like like i had never seen until a couple of years ago you recommended homicidal oh the, the william castle movie yes first of all that's now one of my favorites <laughs> ever it's so, so great another perfect rachel movie the other thing i was so shocked about was the gore in that movie was surprisingly graphic considering its time yeah yeah, there's you. You'll see stuff from way back when that's like, wait, yeah. that's a fucking head that got cut off. <laughs> I didn't know they could do that. <laughs> yeah, and like I, the other movie I watched was from the maybe the early '30s, Mystery at the Wax Museum. Mystery at the Wax Museum. Okay, so yeah. So my great grandpa worked on that film. Really? Yeah, he was a script supervisor all the way from the beginning of the talkies until the '70s. So he did for Warner Brothers. He worked like all the Warner Brothers movies from that time period. So he worked on Mystery at the Wax Museum. So for 31 Days of Horror, a few years ago, I decided I'm going to watch, like, has he, did he ever work in any horror movies? So I watched that one. I was fucking shocked at how disturbing some of that imagery was in that movie. That movie, it's, I mean, for one, it's pre-code. Yes. So there's a lot of dialogue and themes in that movie that, you know... <laughs> disappeared from films for like 20 fucking years after yeah. that yeah the, i mean there's they talk about drug addiction there's what the lead character is a woman a single woman yeah. a single career woman yep and yeah some of the violence in it is like startling it's very startling and just i mean look wax figurines like anything to do with wax figures is going to be creepy they really nailed it with the creep factor in this movie like it's disgusting Highly recommend it. Oh, it's so it's so fucking great. It's one yeah. of my favorites too. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't know that. I yeah. didn't know that. I mean, I would got I mean, he's he's been gone since because he's my great grandpa. He's been gone for twenty five years now. But of course I wanted to go back and dig around in his credits and what are the horror movies he worked on. Cause cause that's what I do every October is I try to I'll either watch something from childhood that month. Like I always watch a few things I haven't seen since I was a kid. And then I'll always watch something like really fucking old. Mm -hmm. And I encourage people to do that too. I think that stuff gets written off, but if you go back and explore, you'll find something worthwhile. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. That's like the beauty of the genre is like, it's like a beautiful blooming onion. You just keep pulling <laughs> back those delicious crispy layers. Yeah. Uh, I love it so much. So yeah. God, this was really fun. Yeah. We should do it again. Yeah, we should we should absolutely I'd love to talk about more movies, horror movies with you, especially ones that because there's a million that had a big impact on me as a kid. Especially. You're also just like one of the first guests I wanted to get on this when I first started thinking Aww. like okay, this is what I'm going to do. You're one of the first people I reached out to, and I felt bad because for literally years now, I think 
has it been two years or something? Maybe. Maybe. I can't remember when you told me, okay, bad seed. And I was like, okay. And then it just took me forever to come up with something. I mean, it, it worked out perfectly. Like I'm glad that we found the right and really yeah. interesting companion piece. Curse of the Cat people came along at just the right time. Yeah. It was meant to be. It was a yeah. good. Do you have anything you want to plug, promote? Just my podcast. Yeah. Hollywood crime scene. If you're into old Hollywood true crime, we talk about a lot of unknown, lesser known stories from old, old Los Angeles. If you're into that. And then we talk about some more current stories as well. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. This, this was, was great. So fun. Yeah. This is so great talking about Patty McCormick and Ann Carter. <laughs> icons do you want to say the catchphrase with me the the closing i don't know if it's a catchphrase so much as it is like a yeah it is sure this is the thing class Class deceased. deceased